Thanks, Michael. Well, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Happy Sabbath. It's uh, I'm still not used to it. We're I think three three weekends in. I'm still saying mornings. Forewarning to everybody who is coming up front to give announcements. It's afternoon, just for future reference, anyway. <laughs> Well, uh, today we're going to be sharing a message entitled The Beauty of Imperfection. The Beauty of Imperfection. And this really came from um, an activity that we had as, in fa- as a family. So a few weeks ago when uh, the kids were still in school holiday, uh, the Loom was doing an exhibition um, that, had, uh, that was showcasing Van Gogh. And uh, throughout the exhibit, it was... Uh, it was kind of an immersive experience where you walk into this room and there are, project- there are tons of projectors all over the ceiling and they're projecting these images along the wall. Some of the images were static, other images were animated, and they would cycle through different pictures every uh, few moments. And it kind of it was a great experience to watch the kiddos kind of sprawl out their, their uh, coloring paper on the ground and just kind of enjoy music that's being played throughout the exhibit. Um, and, and another element of the exhibit was the, um, there would be different scents that would be diffused throughout throughout the uh, duration of the program, and it really gave you this kind of um, it gave you the illusion that you were with Van Gogh as he was painting the different landscapes. There would be different scents of cedar and sycamore, and it was kind of it was a it was a cool experience. Well, after um, going through the whole exhibit. Uh, I learned that Van Gogh was quite a spiritual individual, and that wasn't something that I knew beforehand. And so uh, Jinha and I kind of had this chat afterwards about how uh, we had learned new things. And uh, Jinha kind of shared, yeah, actually, um, my dad, his favorite theologian is a man by the name of uh, Henry Nguyen. And Henry Nguyen was deeply influenced by the spirituality of Van Gogh, and it influenced his own theology. And to put this into perspective, Henry Nguyen, um, he was not an unknown theologian. Rather, he was a professor at Yale Divinity School. And after his time at Yale, he went on to uh, teach at Harvard. And while at Harvard, he was just deeply impressed with the need to um, practice compassion. And so he left his professorship and went to serve as a director of this community called uh, Sun Sunbreak community, and this community really ministered to people who were uh, disabled, and he spent the remainder of his career as the director of this community. So while at Yale, um, Henry Nguyen taught a class on compassion and Van Gogh, and uh, one of his students compiled notes from this class and wrote uh, this book here, uh, sorry, I've just um, (laughs) wrote this book here called uh, learning from Henry Nguyen and Vincent Van Gogh. And she says by the end of the class, Van Gogh became so personal that he simply became Vincent. And this is how she introduces him in the book, and this is how I will r- refer to him throughout the remainder of the sermon as Vincent. Is that rain? Yeah. Well, welcome to... Sorry? Sorry. <laughs> All right, so... Throughout this book, there's a compilation of history that's been pieced together by over 900 letters that have been written between um, Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo. And so I'll be referring to some of these letters throughout the remainder of this sermon. So just to go into Vincent's life, at the age of 16, Vincent learned the trade of art, and he was sent to a firm called Gopal and Sai, Forgive my horrible French pronunciation because I don't really know how to pronounce it, but anyway, you can bear with me. Uh, 
Um, his uncle was one of the partners of this art dealership. And uh, this was not just an unknown art dealership. This was the most significant art dealership that had that had its headquarters in Paris. It was internationally known and they had branches throughout Europe. And Vincent was sent to um, London, uh, to the London branch. Um, while he was here in the London branch, he fell in love with his landlord's daughter. And even though he pursued her, she um, emphatically rejected him. And this kind of sent him into this depressive spiral and he was quite sad about the whole situation. And in his loneliness, and his, in his passion, it led him to seek after God. And so during this time period, he really devoured scripture and spiritual books. And uh, he really hoped to find meaning and solace um, in, in his faith. Well, during his time in London, he came across a preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And he attended the church services and began to regularly worship um, wherever Charles Spurgeon was. And if you Google in your, on your phones, um, and I'll actually encourage you to do this because I couldn't really find legal pictures. And so um, I'm going to be referring to several things. If you're curious, you can Google it as I, as I share the story. Um, but yeah, if you Google Charles Spurgeon, there are pictures of him preaching to thousands and thousands of people. And there's kind of this revival that takes place throughout um, the UK. And um, Vincent is kind of in the middle of this revival. Well, he grew less and less interested in selling art. And, um, and because he wasn't really fulfilling his duties at this art dealership, he was transferred to Paris. And his uncle being an influential employee of them to be at the center of art in, in, in Paris. Well, his interest in theology continues. And he Summarizing sermons and copying hymns and letters to his brother Theo. And it was in Paris that Van Gogh grew to love and have compassion for the poor. And he wrote to his brother Theo while in Paris, There's something in Paris that is more beautiful than the autumn and the churches, and those are the poor. Throughout Vincent's life, he would look for ways to live with poor people who were marginalized and in need, and he was no longer fulfilled by art, and he was no longer fulfilling his responsibilities in his job, and he was dismissed from, Gopal, from the Gopal galleries. Well, on his return home, um, he had to endure shame from the community because he had failed in his career, and of course his parents were quite upset about um, um, his, his, his unwillingness to, to uh, develop his craft. Well, had a desire to follow in his father's footsteps, and he asked, would you give me a blessing to pursue ministry? I don't know if you knew this, but Van Gogh's dad was an actual prominent minister um, in Holland, and or in the small communities of Holland, and his parents gave him a blessing, and Vincent left for Amsterdam, where he began preparing for his entrance exams um, in, order to enroll with his, uh, in order to enroll in the theological studies. Now, it's kind of funny, but uh, Vincent balked at studying the required biblical languages. And in his preparations for his exams, he just got fed up with Greek and Hebrew, and he said, I'm done with this, and he quit his theological studies. Now, it's kind of funny that um, had it not been for Greek and Hebrew, Vincent van Gogh may have been a pastor, and history would have been changed forever. And, and I'll tell you, biblical languages have been the bane of many pastors' existence. So <laughs> he's not the only one. Well, Van Gogh turned, or Vincent turned his heart to missionary work, and he enrolled in a school uh, that trained missionaries in Belgium. 
Now, apparently, Vincent was an exasperating student, and his insubordinate nature led him to another failure. And so he didn't succeed going beyond three months um, of the training program. So even though he didn't have adequate training, he was determined to serve the poor. And so he heard about a poverty-stricken mining district in northern Belgium and met with a supervising pastor there. His polite and proper Dutch manners, as well as being able to express himself in French, impressed the local pastor. And he was given a small group of Protestant miners and began to lead religious services and give them Bible studies. Well, after hearing about his work, the superiors at the missionary training school agreed to give him another chance and to support him for six months. And so they provided him housing, funding, and clothes so that he could um, fulfill his duties as a minister. Now, what Vincent encountered in the mining village was terrible. He saw how the mining families lived in utter poverty. He saw small dark cottages that had no running water. He saw employees having shifts for over 12 hours at a time. The miners rarely saw light, and the sanitary conditions in the mines were inhumane. There was no medical or social aid, and there were many victims in mining accidents, and the population suffered from malnutrition and respiratory diseases. Alcoholism was rampant, causing further hardship, and children who didn't have access to formal education were left to follow in their parents' footsteps, which repeated the cycle of poverty in the community. So Vincent found himself literally ministering to a people who walked in darkness. A worship space was set up in a small dance hall where Van Gogh found himself standing in front of a small community of miners preaching to them behind a makeshift pulpit. And what he quickly realized is that his sermons were not connecting to, his, uh, to the people he was trying to minister to. He was talking about the promises and goodness of God, and here these people were living in misery. And he realized there's a disconnect between where I'm ministering from and where these people are. Back then, it was expected that there was holy separation between the minister and the congregation. And so often the minister would dress well um, as he would go to church. He had his own home that he would live in separate from the community, and he was supposed to be the representative of God. Well, during this time, Vincent decided to reject this form of ministry, and so he increasingly visited the miners in their homes, and he would discover empty cupboards and hungry children, and he would take um, his monthly allowance and take his food rations, and he would feed those people who were, who were hungry. And he soon also ran out of food or he soon didn't have enough food to make it each month. Vincent followed the ideals of a theologian by the name of Thomas A. Kempis, who encouraged people to practice self-denial and devote every living moment to those less fortunate than himself. It's written that, or it's, it's, um, there's a record that he used his last shirt to dress the wounds of a miner who was injured in a mining accident, and the doctor had kind of pronounced him gone. He just said, look, this guy's not going to recover, and everyone kind of gave up hope. But as Vincent saw this, he, he, he looked at what he had, and he said, I can make bandages for this individual. So Vincent actually nursed this man to health. He helped the man's wife. Um, and he continued to provide food for the family, and lo and behold, the, the miner recovered. So Vincent left the comforts of his family, um, he left the comforts of his home, and even while he was with his host family, he tore up his bed, made bandages from his own bed, and took care of the poor that were in the mining village. 
he soon decided to leave the host family and live with a mining family near the mines. When the hostess tried to prevent him from leaving, he turned and said to her, Esther, one should do like the good God from time to time, and one should go and live among his own. Vincent didn't want to be regarded as the one who came from the safe place of religious authority and higher social rank, but as one who participated in the same human condition. Vincent even spent personal time in the mines. After talking with one of the miners, the miners asked him, would you like to see our working conditions? He was very interested, so he traveled 700 meters underground and spent the day with the miners, and he realized how terrible the working conditions were, and he called the mines a pit of hell. This experienced Vincent to become a spokesperson for the miners, and he entered into social justice by negotiating with the mining bosses to change the conditions of the pits. The story goes that there was a time where there was an uprising and a strike broke out, and Vincent prevented the miners from setting fire to the mine. He was the only individuals that the miners would listen to because they saw him as someone who genuinely cared for their well-being. Well, soon after, a delegation of the Belgium Evangelism Committee was sent to assess Vincent's work, and when they came to the mining village, they noticed that Vincent looked exactly like the miners. They were appalled at his, 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 his thin frame, the fact that he had no nice clothes, and that he just looked poor. And so they dismissed him because they felt that he would mar the reputation of the, evangel the Belgium Evangelism Association. His service and his methods were too radical, and Vincent was dismissed. Henry Nguyen writes about compassion, and I just want to read his, his observations of Vincent's life at this point in time. He says, On the level of solidarity with the miners, deep down in his own pit of loneliness, Vincent had encountered the most basic force pervading human existence, love. He had gone down literally and figuratively into the depths of the mine and had metaphorically discovered there not the black coal, but the transformed piece of coal, the diamond. He had discovered the treasure that was buried within his own being. When Henry Nguyen writes about compassion, he has some deep insights into this, and he writes, Joy is hidden in compassion. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. It seems quite unlikely that suffering with another person would bring joy, yet being with a person in pain... Offering simple presence to someone in despair, sharing with a friend times of confusion and uncertainty, such experiences can bring us deep joy. Not happiness, not excitement, not great satisfaction, but the quiet joy of being there for someone else and living in deep solidarity with our brothers and sisters in this human family. Often, this is a solidarity in weakness, in brokenness, in woundedness, but it leads us to the center of joy, which is sharing our humanity with others. We need this kind of connection with one another. Not all of us experience prosperity, but all of us experience pain, of some sort at least. So to the parents who struggle with raising their children, to those who are trying to make ends meet and make it in this inhospitable world, to those who have lost loved ones, to those who are suffering from physical unwellness, 
we need to practice this connectedness and compassion. So I encourage you as a church, open up about your suffering. Share with someone your struggle. And I don't mean just tell everybody wherever you can, but there's somebody, potentially someone in this church that you feel that you can connect with. And I think there's this uncomfortable barrier to become transparent and to say, this is what I'm going through. But I encourage you that in doing so, you will meet somebody who's gone through something similar. Learn to suffer with people. I think we want solutions. We want to be free from suffering. But it isn't always possible. I mean, praise God for the moments where there is freedom from suffering. But often the pain persists. And I encourage you to learn to connect with one another in the midst of the suffering. There's healing of another nature when we do this. Henry Nguyen writes, When we say to a suffering person, Don't cry, or things will be better tomorrow, or don't worry, we really try to move that person to a place where he or she is not. But to console means, first of all, to be with somebody where it hurts. And that's not very easy because how can you be with someone who hurts if you don't want to be here with your own pain? And therefore, we run away from the pain instead of deepening it. We want to avoid it and cover it up. In a culture that prefers to deaden pain rather than deal with its reality, both Henry and Vincent embrace pain to encounter compassion. There's a passage here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. There are examples in our church where this has happened. I think of Owen who met Ingrid in seminary, and he knew of the struggles that she was going through uh, physically, and he went to Ingrid and said, Ingrid, I'm committing the rest of my life to taking care of you. And instead of going into full-time ministry, Owen ceases his pursuit of ministry and becomes a caretaker, and for years has, been, has sat next to the bedside of Ingrid taking care of her. Now, many of you actually... I don't know if any of you have met Owen or Ingrid. Um, actually, maybe because um, they've joined our, our Zoom um, catch-ups during the pandemic. But here is an individual who embraced this kind of living. I think of the community who is surrounding Ruth, uh, who has surrounded Ruth during her time of suffering. I think of the mothers group who constantly text each other encouragement as they go through the struggles of raising children. For those of you who are struggling and suffering, I encourage you, press together. We were not meant to go through this alone. I'm going to rush through this next part of uh, Van Gogh's story just for the sake of time because we're, we're, I'm going to go way over time. So Vincent begins his journey as an artist. In summary, he goes back to his family and says, I have failed as a missionary, and his parents are really unhappy. 
and he tries to live with them. It doesn't work out, and basically he has to live with a mining family in the very same village that his family, that his parents live in. And it's during that time where he begins to pick up the pencil and start sketching. And Van Vincent had always had this passion for drawing, but he felt guilty because he thought that his love for art was getting in the way of his primary calling, which is ministry. Well, now that his time as a minister and as an evangelist had failed, he then picked up the pencil and started drawing, and he really cultivates this passion um, for, for, for art. Well, he goes to his family and he asks them, will you please support me? His dad says, no, <laughs> I, will, I will not support you. But Vincent's loving brother, Theo, who has been sent to Paris to take his position as an art dealer, says, I will financially support you. And for the remainder of Vincent's life, Theo financially supports him by sending him money and art supplies. And it's the, there are records in, in Vincent's letters where he says, Theo, the art that I produce is just as much yours as it is mine. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have existed without you. Well, Vincent learns how to, um, how to draw, and he spends years cultivating his skill, and he decides to move to Paris um, and live with his brother, Theo. And so for two years, he lives in Paris. He gets in touch with the art community. He has lots of arguments. He picks up drinking, and he becomes kind of an alcoholic, and this kind of adds to his melancholy mindset and his, his, um, his depressive, um, well, his depression, really. Now, this is really important. His time in Paris is important because it's during this time where the neoclassical era of art has come to an end and Impressionism is introduced into the world. And there's kind of this rejection of traditional art and the whole art world makes this shift. Rather than trying to accurately paint subjects, they are more interested in emotion and in motion rather than accuracy. And so you have people like Claude Monet who become famous. Um, there's also technological advances in art where prior to the invention of tubes of oil paint, people had to take bricks of pigment, scrape it off, mix color, and then they could paint. So everything had to be done in studio. But it's in the mid-19th century that tubes of oil paint are invented, and it gives artists freedom to then go out in nature and paint landscapes. Colors become vibrant, and basically there's this rejection of classical art, and then modern art is born. And so here comes Vincent van Gogh. He steps onto the scene and embraces color theory and says, I want to make a difference in my art. I want to connect with people. I want, I want to communicate compassion and emotion, and he basically practices his craft. So Vincent moves away from Paris after two years because his health has deteriorated. He's argued with a bunch of artists, and he decides, I'm going to go make it on my own. So he hops on a train, and he's about to travel down to Marseille. And as he's traveling down to Marseille, there's this town called A-R-L-E-S. In French, it's pronounced... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I butchered that. But anyway, if you want, you can Google the pronunciation and you can listen to how to pronounce the name of the town correctly. And it's during this one year in this town that uh, Vincent van Gogh, he paints, I believe, 300 paintings in a matter of one year. He paints landscapes, he paints colors, and he's just so... Um, 
influenced by this new way of painting that it just changes everything that he does. I am so glad that the slide is different there than it is here because like portions of it are chopped off and it's been so distracting the past like 10 minutes. What you'll notice here is that um, you have the painting of a previous era and Vincent's interpretation of that painting. And in the previous era, and this is Rembrandt's uh, take on the resurrection of Lazarus, you see there's restraint in the painting. There's this um, maybe darkness or sadness to the painting. And Van Gogh, he flips everything on its head. He's like, I'm going to use a color yellow. <laughs> and he just kind of goes bonkers and the, the, the painting is vibrant. And what's interesting is that here we have the resurrection of Lazarus from uh, Rembrandt's perspective and then the resurrection of Lazarus from Van Gogh's, uh, from Vincent's perspective. And you'll notice there's one important figure missing in Van Gogh in, in Vincent's painting. It's the figure of Jesus. And who is he replaced by? The son. And so I recognize for some people might look at this and think, ah, oh, paganism. <laughs> but rather, um, Vincent is so moved by celestial bodies, uh, particularly the sun, moon, and the stars. And for him, though, whenever he observes nature, it triggers in him this desire for worship and spirituality. And so Henry Nguyen remarks, you know, when you look at the paintings of Van Gogh, what really first makes artists interested in Van Gogh, it's not the famous picture of the potato eaters. And if you, if you want to Google uh, the potato eaters, it's the first time he kind of perfects this art in motion theory. And so um, it's not the potato eaters that really draws people to Vincent. It's really his portrayal of celestial bodies, um, in particularly the sun, moon, and the stars. So Vincent, uh, Vincent begins to um, paint here um, in, in, the, in this town of... Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, and it's here where he wants to start an art community. And so his brother begs this man by the name of Paul Gauguin, and he says, please go live with my brother and start an art community together. I will pay you to go live with Vincent. And so reluctantly, Paul Gauguin says, all right, and he goes and lives with Vincent. Now these two guys argue about everything. They argue about art theory. They argue about how they should run their house living together. And they just, they fight so much that Gauguin says, I am leaving you. I don't want to live here anymore. And as he's, as he's about to leave the house, Vincent gets so angry and nobody knows exactly what happened but he takes a knife and he cuts his own ear off. And um, basically he gets hospitalized. Paul says, all right, you're in the hospital. I'm out of here. And he leaves. So it's going through this experience that um, Vincent realizes, I have a problem. I, I am not normally. I'm not, I'm not mentally well. And the townspeople feel that, that way as well. They put together a petition, and they basically kick Vincent out of the town, and they board up his own house. And they're like, you can't move back here anymore. We don't want you here because we think you're a danger to society. So Vincent van Gogh then moves to uh, this monastery. Well, he doesn't move. He admits himself to this monastery called uh, St. Paul de Mausol. <laughs> and... Um, 
even to this day, this this monastery has an asylum um, and a psychiatric clinic that offers opportunity for therapeutic um, art. And the program that they've built together is called the Association of Valetudo, which means moon. And you can guess, or you, you can probably guess that it's here that Van Gogh painted Starry Night. Um, let me just rush this real quick. It's during his time in this asylum that he paints 150 paintings. One of those paintings was the painting of uh, the irises and, of course, Starry Night. Now, I just want to mention here, um, you know, in the exhibit, there was this amazing slide that came up. And um, it's a letter that it's a it's 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 a quote from Van Gogh as he writes to his brother. And he says, when I have um, a terrible need of, shall I say the word, religion, then I go and I paint the stars. Now, I don't think there are very many people that realize that starry night, it really comes from a desire to connect with God. And so here is Van Gogh. He's in a mental asylum. He's, in, he's been in there for months, and he just feels this deep need of God. And so he goes and he paints the stars. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people wonder, what's that black looming object because it looks very dark and that's intentional like uh, art scholars say that uh, they're uh, art scholars identify this as a cypress tree which are kind of dotted around the monastery and as vincent looks at this in night he just paints it in this dark way and actually in the midst of this darkness you see this beautiful sky contrasted with this bright light and here it's almost as if vincent acknowledges the darkness in his heart and at the same time connects with God. And I think that's something that's very relevant to all of us. Let me wrap up here. Um, so Vincent was in this asylum for one year. Once he was discharged, less than uh, five months later, he goes into this field with an easel, and um, the story goes he gets shot. And he somehow makes it back to his accommodation at the inn, he contacts his brother, and his brother stays with him for two days, and basically he dies in his brother's arms. Now, history says that Vincent committed suicide, but there are actual researchers who have gone through different um, records and also the forensic study of his body, and they're saying it's much more likely that there was a shooting accident. Apparently, there were uh, there was a group of teenagers who used to give Vincent a hard time. They were also there at the field. One of them had a malfunctioning pistol, and they were playing cowboys. And uh, the, the more accurate um, hypothesis or theory is that Vincent was shot by the malfunctioning gun. And what you see in the story of Vincent Van Gogh is he never mentions this to anybody. There's no report. There's no police report. And this is almost his last act of compassion in his life where he just says, you made a mistake, I got shot, and I'm, I'm ready to go. Now, what's amazing in the life of Vincent van Gogh is that um, historians say that he sold one piece of art his whole life. Can you imagine dedicating the majority of your adulthood to a craft and nobody appreciates it, nobody cares, they don't like, they don't, they did, people didn't like his personality, he was too eccentric, he was you know, he had depression, and people are just kind of like, you are too much to deal with. We don't like you. We don't like your work. And yet, he just dedicates his whole life to this craft. What's amazing to me is that Vincent van Gogh is kind of one of the fathers of modern art. 
And this is why he's so well known. I mean, he changed color theory. He changed the way that people interpreted nature. Um, he literally changed the world because deep down inside, he felt this truth. He wanted to communicate this truth and commun uh, connect with the masses. And he just said, I'm not giving up on this. I don't know if there's anything that you're going through right now where you question if something is worth your time. Maybe it's parenting your children. <laughs> Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's your spirituality. Maybe there's something where you're just asking yourself the question, is this worth, is this worth my time? How do you survive those moments where you're really questioning the meaningfulness of what you're investing your time in? In closing, Oh, so uh, Vincent wrote to his brother, I can't change the fact that my paintings don't sell, but the time will come when people recognize that they're worth more than the value of the paints used in the picture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10, Paul writes, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Something was transformational for Paul when he stopped looking at the world being for him and him then living for God. As he prioritized God, he could then rely on his grace and see the world as God sees it. And so I encourage you, as you struggle and you ask the question, is what I'm doing really worth it? May you encounter the grace of God as you prioritize him. Let's close with prayer. Father God, you know our hearts, you know our struggles, you know what we're going through. And as we reflect on Vincent van Gogh, someone who is deeply imperfect, someone who is deeply flawed, someone who is deeply troubled. Um, Father, it's amazing to see what you've done in his life. And so as we reflect upon our own struggles, I pray that you would give us um, that sense that you are here with us in your compassion, that we can connect with you in a meaningful way and that we can connect with one another. And Father, I just pray that you would inspire us as a community to draw each other closer and to encourage each other in you. And may we experience your grace, may we experience your power, and may we be able to say, as Paul says, in our weakness, you are strong. We pray these things in your name. Amen.